Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. It doesn't take a conspiratorialist, though, to see that we've got a problem right now. The misinformation we have on COVID-19 so outdistances facts to not pass any smell test. And that's why I wanted to talk to Jane Orient. Dr. Orient is the executive director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, as well as the president of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. And as I was mentioning last hour, these are not new organization. Doctors for Disasters Preparedness goes back to the Civil War, and the AAPS is at least over 70 years old. So uh, they're well-founded and well-grounded, and most importantly, they'll tell you the truth. So, Dr. Orient, Thanks for joining us. Ah, uh, apparently, apparently, Doctor Orion is not joining us yet. Uh, but I know, I know she will uh, will be. And uh, as I was saying, there, there, there's in no way am I saying, gee, there's not a problem out here. There, there indeed is a contagion out there in our midst. The, the question is, is how we're handling that. And uh, I have a pet theory that. And then you'll think I've really lost my mind. Uh, but I'll share it with you in moments and run it by, uh, by Dr. Jane as, as well. Uh, every afternoon I do the uh, news on another radio station in America. And it's interesting because uh, one of the things I have to do is the rundown of the, of the COVID figures. And when I discovered how they were compiling this, I, that's, that's when I just lost, lost it completely. And I now have a disclaimer on my death tolls. I say the death toll is controversial everywhere, as some cases are not confirmed. Others are changed posthumously without autopsy. And in some confirmed cases, the cause may be more reasonably attributed to an underlying condition. And uh, that, is, that is so true uh, to be that the numbers become almost meaningless. And so we have uh, located Dr. Orient. And welcome to the Raleigh James Show on WGN Radio. Hello. Yes, it's been been almost a decade since we've uh, we've talked, but uh, you continue to be the voice of reason, and I thank you for that. Well, thank you. And uh, one of the things with regard to what's going on right now is that, and I was just talking about this, the the quote unquote facts and figures we have aren't based on facts. And when I hear about death tolls that in some cases they're not confirmed, they're based on diagnosis, in other cases they're changed posthumously without autopsy, or in some cases the underlying conditions by far were the causative reason of death, I say to myself, what's going on here? Now, is there anywhere that I can get an accurate count? I don't think so. I think that there is so much corruption in the system because for one thing the hospital gets paid a whole lot more if they uh, diagnose a case of covid particularly if they ventilate the patient yes so if their payment is 20 percent more or maybe even tens of thousands of dollars more if the patient died of covid there is every incentive to do that and the the coding staff and the physicians will be instructed that that's how they're supposed to uh, code the death. 
It's interesting you say that because I had heard that initially early on in this, and then there was uh, all these quote-unquote debunking sites, the Snopes of the world. And what was so funny about that, Dr. Orient, is that ultimately they had to confirm it. And because it, it is true that if you're uh, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, and someone's on a vent, it's, it's 37000 additional dollars, period, uh, to a hospital. And I think it's 11000 just for an admittance, additional dollars. And so, but the upshot of all these debunking sites was say, well, a hospital, we have no reason to believe that a hospital would, in fact, fudge those figures. And I think to myself, you have every reason to believe that. And they're saying there, there's absolutely no examples of that. Yet when you talk directly to people in interviews and such, they don't come out and say it, but they are admitting that, well, yes, the underlying condition might have been the factor. So there's a, there's a lot going on here with what we, what we don't know. I've got a theory, and as I was saying, I'm a conspiratorialist, I guess, and so this will this will make me out to be crazy. But you're you're a doctor, so I'm going to run it by you and see if you think it's at all plausible. Uh, my pet theory is that the Wuhan lab was developing vaccines or antivirals, and they spliced a bloodborne virus with an aerosol, and it accidentally got out. And not knowing the result, the immediate reaction shut down populations, and then at some point, politicians of all stripes jumped in on it for their own ends, and and here we are. Do you think that could have happened? I think it could have happened, but I I think it's pure speculation. I don't sure. know that it happened, and we can spend all day asking about who done it. But the what? But the situation that we are in now is is unprecedented. It's disastrous, and and what are we going to do about it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. That from that standpoint, the the cause doesn't doesn't matter. But when I'm seeing some of these reports, and of course they are reports, but I'm hearing extensively about blood clotting or lung fibrosis in the cytokine storm, and uh, I'm no I'm no doctor. So my first question is, when I'm hearing about all these things, the the, the shocking news, uh, do those events happen with your standard coronavirus? They happen with with various types of viral illnesses, the blood clotting and and any virus that attacks the endothelium or attacks the lung can cause these things. We we don't hear about them all that often, but it can happen with infectious mononucleosis. It can ha- it could rarely happen with another type of coronavirus. I mean, it does happen, and it's very unfamiliar to the general public. But to specialists in infectious disease, they'll say, "Yeah, we we see this." Okay, so the then kind of uh, is, the, is, there, is the reason for cause of death in, in all kinds of infectious diseases. All right, so then aerosol viruses could produce these effects that the, the news media makes out to be an alarming complication, maybe not so alarming to a physician. This, this is somewhat known. Well, they are alarming, but they're, but they're certainly not unheard of, and they're not some new type of demon virus that does something right. that no other virus has done before. It is a particularly nasty virus, which is why it's so important to treat it early. And what is so incomprehensible to me is there is all this resistance to talking about what you can do to treat it early instead of waiting until the patient is near death or on a ventilator. Yes, I I agree with that wholeheartedly because we've seen so many, some of them are anecdotal reports, but in other places, some some small-scale studies where uh, things are absolutely having effect uh, early on. And instead of embracing this, what we're seeing in many American communities is that these treatments are being outlawed. 
exactly or prohibited or made very, very difficult to obtain. But it's not true that all we have is anecdotal studies. There are 53 studies of hydroxychloroquine, 33 of them peer-reviewed. A really exciting one came out just very, very recently from the Henry Ford Health System that showed that you cut the death rate in hospitalized patients by 50%. Half as many people died if they were given hydroxychloroquine compared to people who were not given hydroxychloroquine. And physicians who have been treating outpatients early within, say, the first five days of symptoms are saying they very rarely have a patient deteriorate and have to go to the hospital. That's uh, certainly, you know, in some ways alarming compared to what you hear in the media, but but certainly ironclad in my mind, at the very least, something like that would be the cause to say, hey, uh, you're certainly welcome to give it a try. I mean, I would think encouraged, but at least welcome. So what's the logic behind stopping that? I can see that there is no logic whatsoever, and I've never seen anything like it before. If you have a condition that's new and you have reports from anybody, from doctors, from the medical literature, that something is helping to keep your patient from dying, of course you try it. And you, the doctors are legally authorized to prescribe any drug that's been approved by the FDA for any condition for other indications as well. And hydroxychloroquine's been approved for 65 years, and it's been used in hundreds of millions of patients worldwide. It's very frequently used by millions of patients for lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Mm -hmm. So while, like, there's no drug that's 100% safe, but this is one of the safest drugs that we have. It's safer than a lot of things that people can buy freely over the counter. And in many countries of the world, they can buy hydroxychloroquine over the counter. And in Asian countries or in some Latin American countries that have uh, decided to use this freely, their death rate is a tiny fraction of ours. So why aren't we using it? Well, I said that there's no logical reason. Right. There are a lot of, of reasons having to do with financial conflicts of interest, mm-hmm. such as the, the remdesivir story. That is the drug that... It was, it's been about, about 30 years old. It was tried in Ebola. It didn't work. It's been sitting on the shelf. But as the, some studies have been done, you can only give it intravenously in hospitalized patients. But as soon as a study came out showing that it reduced the hospital stay in survivors by about four days, Tony Fauci was saying, oh, this is the new standard of care. And now the federal government, even before it's been officially approved by the FDA, has bought up three months' worth of production of this stuff at a cost of more than $3,000 for every course of therapy. So there's yeah, versus, a little bit of a financial self-interest here. Yeah, versus what? Hydra, quinine basically would be pennies a dose, I would assume. Well, yeah, a course of treatment has been given recently in New York for about 20 bucks. Okay, so and that's the course of treatment. Now, uh, Dr. Fauci is, is, has become not one of my favorite people, and one of the biggest issues for me was, and he was asked by Congress about this, but they didn't, they didn't follow through, is uh, he was asked about why he at first uh, said that the general public shouldn't wear masks. Now, you or I might say they never should have, but, but he absolutely fervently believed they should. He admitted that he intentionally misled the public for uh, uh, preserving the supply for health care workers. Now, 
if that's true, why would anybody believe a word this man said after that? Well, he has been wrong about so many things. He has been he has been in the bureaucracy for about 40 years now. He's 79 years old. He probably should have retired 15 years ago. But for some reason, he is considered the authority on things, although he's been wrong time after time after time. He treated the 2009 epidemic of H1N1 completely differently from how this is being treated. And, and he was very, very early involved in the HIV-AIDS epidemic, and they did not do any of the contact tracing or any of the shutting down of, of places where they knew this was being disseminated. As a result, we have millions of people dying every year from HIV-AIDS. And remember, he was a very influential person at the very beginning of that epidemic when it probably could have been stopped. Well, there's an indictment for you. Uh, and I've heard similar things and, and also uh, all the financial things you're, you're talking about. But on the other hand, I would, would have hoped that the medical profession as a whole, especially if they were aware about uh, the quinine studies and, and the result, would be up in arms saying, you know, no, this is what we want to do. Why does there seem to be either silence or agreement Again, this is a very good question. The outgoing president of the AMA, Patrice Harris, was saying, uh, together with the, the, the editor-in-chief of all these JAMA, these AMA journals, we're following the science, and we can't be promoting unproved therapies. So what, what the medical profession is, is doing is it is kicking people out of the emergency room, kicking them out of their office, if they're suspected of having COVID-19, saying, go home, take some Tylenol, take some ibuprofen, and come back and see us if you're so sick that you can't breathe, if you're sick enough to be in the hospital, then maybe we'll take you in the hospital. But between now and then, there is nothing we can do for you. Yeah, and that's exactly what you're you're hearing, even on uh, the public service announcements and stuff that uh, you know don't basically don't come to the office and, and things of this nature. Uh, is it a case where they are prohibiting the use of quinine, or is it just a case where they're discouraging it? Uh, in most cases, they're discouraging it. I mean, ordinarily, you can just write a prescription for an off-label use of a drug, and about one in five prescriptions is for an off-label use. You take it to the pharmacy, and the pharmacy fills it. But on this, some some governors are saying, well, you have to put a COVID diagnosis on it if it's for COVID, but not if it's for lupus. And you take it to the pharmacy, and the pharmacist is under pressure from the board of pharmacy not to dispense this medication if he thinks it's being used for for COVID in what he considers to be an inappropriate way, particularly if it's being used for prophylaxis, which is exactly with the way it should be used for COVID, the way it is for malaria. Why do we have all of these policemen, firefighters, dental hygienists, not to mention doctors, nurses, you know, truck drivers, clergymen, people who serve the public every day? Why are they not allowed to take a cheap pill, a cheap, safe, long-established pill once a week or once every two weeks to protect themselves and their families and any of the public that they come in contact with? Why, why, why that does not make sense? It makes no ethical sense either. 
Well, it, especially ethical. You know, I mean, doctors uh, to do no harm and all those things. I am, I am pretty surprised that the the run of the mill doctor is willing to stay silent on this because you don't see much of a, a hue and cry. And studies like these are, uh, you know, as you're talking about, they're they're actual studies. They're legit from their legitimate places and all that. I I can't understand the silence. Yeah, I can't either. I mean, even if you don't have a big study, if you have a colleague who tells you, look, I have been getting some really good results of this, doctors would not be necessarily hesitant to try it, especially when it has such a good safety record. But people, uh, patients and doctors are saying, well, it, it's so dangerous, it might affect your heart. And yet, there's a pile of studies showing that hydroxychloroquine actually is good for your heart, and the studies that have that have shown uh, cardiac side effects in the hospital have been in patients who were really sick, who had their heart was being attacked by the virus, so they were at very high risk. And and some some of the patient studies were being overdosed on the drugs. And those are the only cases where we're seeing heart effects. And like the big study from Henry Ford, um, they were not seeing any dangerous heart effects at all. Yeah, this is where, again, like I say, where I get my conspiratorial hat on and say there, there must be a conspiracy because, like, as you were mentioning, it, it defies, on every level, it defies logic. We are talking with Dr. Jane Orient, and if you are unaware of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, aapsonline.org. Org. We welcome your calls, 888-876-5593. I'm Raleigh James, and this is WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James, and this is WGN Radio, and we are talking with Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, and I see that Dr. Jane is as surprised as I am by what's going on with the way this virus is being handled. Neither of us are saying it doesn't exist or anything of that nature. It exists, and it, it can be nasty. But as I, I say that, Dr. Orient, what percentage of the cases turn out to be nasty? It's kind of hard to say. If you define a case as somebody who's got a positive PCR test that uh, might actually be a false positive, then the percentage is pretty low. Um, So I can't really give you a percentage, but there are young people who are getting very, very sick with it also. And what this means is we really should not delay in treating the symptoms. Right, right. And it, se- it seems like, uh, again, I, I hear it for political reasons. Somebody will say, well, Trump was for it, so we're against it, or this guy's for it, or we're against that. And it seems like all of the arguments I hear are more about politics than they are about medicine. And I'm surprised that, uh, maybe I'm not surprised, that the AMA doesn't weigh in on this, that, uh, that doctors everywhere aren't outraged. I'm not surprised at all. The AMA is owned probably by Big Pharma and by all kinds of other special interest groups. It does not represent the practicing physician. And the practicing physician is no longer the independent um, thinking individual who is working only for his patients. Uh, Maybe almost half of doctors are employed by some big organization or they are contracted with all kinds of managed care plans. And if they do not follow the drop-down menus on the electronic health record or the protocols or what they consider standard of care from their employer, they are terrified of losing their job and even of being delicensed by the state medical board, which has incredible powers and the doctors really have no rights at all. 
that is so horrifying, and especially in the context of people who are clamoring for government health care. Because uh, in the event of something of that nature, what we're saying is the independent doctor would be out of business. Exactly. And people think that we have capitalistic health care now, whereas actually we have state socialism or, or, corporate, or corporate socialism or state capitalism, which are kind of the same thing, where it is a very heavily controlled industry by very powerful central entities that have a huge influence over what is published, over what is discussed, and over what may or may not be legitimately prescribed. I guess the silver lining here, if there is one, is if it could possibly expose this, and in terms of here's quinine for $20 a dose, and and it's not being prescribed because of a a profit motive, uh, you know, that would, of course, uh, I think be an outrage to the general public. But what's frightening is they don't relate to that versus that that's exactly the kind of thing you'd get with managed care. That is the thing you get with managed care. And if you think that managed care will not be in charge if we have a government takeover of medicine, then you're not paying attention because um, Medicaid is the cash cow for managed care. That if you're on Medicaid and you're signed up with the managed care plan, the managed care plan gets paid every month for you, whether you get any treatment or not. And all the incentives are to deny you as much treatment as possible. Well, right. The the way I hear it is when you're talking about Medicaid or even Medicare, the, the reimbursement rate might not even be 100 cents on the dollar, uh, meaning that if there were ever Medicare for all, you've just created a system where we're paying less for that than it, it costs to deliver the care. Well, that's a problem. But even worse than that is the incentives are that you get paid more if you do less. All right. this value-based care and all these quality metrics are set up to give bonuses for for reducing the amount of care that you give to sick people. Yeah, and and this is by the way, this is not to say that there aren't issues that need to be resolved. You know, I'm not not even going there. It's just to say that the the convenient uh, say Medicare for all choice uh, is uh, is absolutely detrimental to medicine as we know it. And, uh, it will only exacerbate the problems that we have. It will not solve any of them. It will just make things more centralized, more bureaucratic, um, more complicated, and put more money into the pockets of the special interest groups who manage to get political influence and control. Everybody right now is hoping for a vaccine. You hear this. And, and when, every time I hear this, there's a very frightening side of rushing to market for something uh, like this. I've heard, and again, to me it's anecdotal, you might have facts, but I've heard that in the swine flu situation, the vaccine killed more people than the flu. But do you foresee that we're going to have a rush to market of a vaccine? And if we do, do you foresee it being mandatory? Uh, yes and yes. I mean, we have a rush to market already. We are having them buy factories to make a vaccine that hasn't been approved yet. And they say, well, if it turns out to be too bad, we'll throw it all out. Well, of course, there are hundreds of millions or billions of dollars invested in not doing that. Uh, vaccines take years to develop. And the reason is 
just the testing takes time. Uh, you've got you test them in animals, and this is being constrained. You have to test it in enough people. You have to wait long enough to see whether or not long-term side effects develop. You have to see whether whether it works, which means you have to see whether the vaccinated people get infected less often than the unvaccinated, and that takes time, uh, except what they're trying to do now is rush it by deliberately infecting the vaccinated people, which goes against all types of medical ethics, the Nuremberg Protocols, the Helsinki Protocols, of deliberately exposing people to things that, that, that are expected to harm them. This is, uh, you know, and again, this is not a discussion to say you're anti-vax or pro-vax. It's not about that at all. It's about, again, established science and emphasis on science that to develop a vaccine properly, it will take, as you say, years and years. And there are many steps in that. And the idea that they're going to bypass that is, I think, more frightening than the uh, than the virus itself. Uh, so you, you foresee them coming out with something and, and mandating it? They're sure talking as though it's a fait accompli, practically. And keep in mind that this is also a novel type of vaccine. It's a type of vaccine that's never, ever been used before. Uh, the way the vaccines we have now, you grow the, some sort of vir- virus or weakened virus in tissue culture, and then you give that to people and they develop an immune response to it. Well, this is not going to be invo- involved with injecti- injecting them with a virus, but with, with genomic material from a virus that is supposed to turn the person's own cells into a vaccine factory. What could go and wrong? Could, <laughs> and you, so you turn on this, this factory, your own cells are going to be making spike proteins, foreign spike proteins like those that are on the virus. And you've got the genomic material that's being incorporated into your own cells. And so you can turn on this production, but how do you turn it off? I mean, maybe there'll be some viral spike proteins that'll be making antibodies against that, but maybe your body will making antibodies against your own very own vaccine factory. It just seems to me that's a theoretical consideration. I don't see any way that this is being tested. It sounds like it can be autoimmune hell. Exactly. Uh, that That is just jaw-dropping. That, And I was completely unaware that they were going at it from that angle. Uh, and not, not only the effects that would be immediate, but as you were saying, long-term. And from what I hear, viruses are kind of around forever in the body. And what makes me think that is they're always touting like the shingles virus in adults saying, well, if you had chicken pox as a kid, now that presumes the virus is still in you. So when you look at the long-term applications... Uh, and uh, events T- tell me about that firstly do we we i guess we have no idea what covid 19's long term effects might be well we don't now shingles is sort of an unusual virus not all viruses hide out in your ganglion and burst out in the future but most viruses are cleared but these are rna viruses they make a lot of mistakes in reproducing themselves and they mutate and they may mutate into something much worse Right. or something that's not as bad, but it truly is unpredictable. But viral epidemics, they come and they go. Aside from smallpox, I don't think there has ever been an epidemic of a viral disease that has been controlled by a vaccine. 
for a variety of reasons, including the virus themselves. I, I know that's you know a very daunting process for these labs, which is why they're trying to come up with stuff. But you know what you're what you're saying is so utterly frightening to me on so many levels, including uh, the reaction to it right now. And uh, I want to talk a little about that. I'm talking with Dr. Jane Orient, and she is from the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, AAPS Online. And uh, is that a .com or a .org? Uh, .org. Okay, aapsonline.org. I'm Raleigh James. If you want to join us, 888-876-5593, raleigh And this is WGN Radio. We are talking with Dr. Jane Orient, and aapsonline.org is the website. And there is no doubt that we have a very nasty virus in our midst, however it got there. Uh, the, the problem that I see is so many people are seizing on this politically. Uh, I agree with this because this guy favors this candidate or that candidate, and that's not helping the situation at all. And when we're talking about a $20 treatment of basic quinine that's been around forever, it's alarming to me that there are people who are trying to stop that. It, it makes me wonder, Dr. Orian, if there are people who are literally trying to stop a resolution in the virus. You have to wonder that. But there are all kinds of motives here. I think some of them are financial. But then you look at Bill Gates. The Bill Gates and, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is hugely influential in the world. It's Bill Gates himself who said, we're, we're going to make your body into a vaccine factory, and he wants to immunize or vaccinate, not necessarily immunize, but vaccinate almost every person on Earth. And if you have a 1 in 10,000 death rate from his vaccine that he admits to, and it could actually be much worse than that, he seems to be okay with having 700,000 human beings die because of his vaccine. And he says, well, maybe it'll save millions of lives who would have, would have died otherwise. But, but uh, well, so 700,000 dying from his vaccine would be okay. The biggest problem I see there is the forced nature of it. It's one thing to offer that with the known quantities and let someone decide. It's another thing to say that you will be vaccinated against your, your will. And I'm sure if it came to that, ultimately, this is, uh, this is going to be a court challenge and probably the highest court challenge. And I, I worry about that uh, significantly. But we've well, got court a- challenges for mandatory vaccines have been failing yeah, over and over again. We established the precedent back in 1905 with the smallpox vaccine where people had to get the vaccine or pay a $5 fine or something like that. That was upheld. Now, the smallpox vaccine did and does kill people. Most people took it anyway because smallpox was, was roaring through the population and it was killing more than half of the people who got it. So in that case, it was considered certainly worth it by most people to take the risk. But with this COVID-19, 99.9% of the people recover from it. Right. So it's a completely different kind of uh, risk-benefit calculation. And as I say, that's, that's one of the most frightening things, if not the most frightening thing. But the other thing, of course, is our, our reaction to it, uh, the, the closing down of everything. And I, I have to wonder, and you would know more than me, about uh, viruses taking their course and herd immunity. What would have happened if we never did any of that? 
Well, probably the same thing that happened in other countries that didn't do any of that. And that always happens with viral epidemics. It reaches a peak and then it subsides. And our all-cause mortality was pretty much back to normal. And because of the the problem with telling whether it's a COVID death or 19, a COVID-19 death or not, the only reliable statistics that we have, I think, is the all-cause mortality rate. And it went up in early April, and now it's about down about to normal. And that's what's happened in all the other countries of the world. It follows sort of a different time sequence depending on when the first wave of cases hit. Will this go in waves? There are people who talk about the 1918 pandemic talking about there were three waves and the second worse than the first. Is that something that is common to every virus? No, but it can happen. Right. It can happen, and so what we need to do is we need to get as much immunity as we can from people getting exposed to very small amounts of the virus and fighting it off, and we need to to really uh, treat it early and look into the idea of using hydroxychloroquine as a prophylactic, just like we do with malaria. If somebody now, for the most part, wanted to do that uh, prophylactically, they've got some symptoms, they say, hey, I, I want quinine, uh, is it still the case that they could go to a doctor and get it, or a doctor is being reluctant to write it because of the things we've discussed? Uh, some doctors will do it, and some won't. I guess that's In how Arizona, you find it. Arizona, it's strictly prohibited to use it prophylactically, which means before you have symptoms. Uh, but you can write it after the symptoms develop, but some doctors are still reluctant. They say, well, it's not proven. Yeah, so I guess this is how you find out who your doctor is. Uh, in terms uh, of, yeah, this is true. <laughs> yeah, unfor- unfortunately. And, uh, you know, we, we've, got, we've got so many facets of this, and right now we're, we're literally looking at not opening schools and things of that nature. So as you see how it's being handled to date, when do you see a resolution to this, if ever? That's really hard, hard to see. Like, we could open the schools in the fall. Looking at the example in other countries that did not shut down their schools ever, and things were just perfectly fine. But it's kind of hard for government to admit that it made a terrible mistake in shutting down the schools. So now they have to go through all kinds of rituals to reopen them under circumstances that are just not feasible. I mean, having kids in masks six feet apart, no sitting together at lunch, no playing outside... Maybe maybe you can only go to school two days a week, and the rest of the time you have to do distance learning. Um, you know, how does a parent cope with a schedule like that? And how do, are kids not driven to, into being just obsessive compulsive neurotics by by this completely pathological behavior? They can't do anything that kids like to do. You know, talk, play. Right. Right. Oh, you can see it. Now, in terms of these tests, uh, I've heard that the antibody tests are just widely inaccurate. Is there any, uh, any antibody test that you would, uh, you would stake the result on? Oh, it's just so hard to know. There are different kinds that are out there, how well they're validated, how well they're tested. It's just very hard to know. And the so, active inf- it, how about the active infection test? Is it reliable? Well, the PCR test, yeah, uh, that is, we don't know how accurate that is either. First place, PCR was never meant to be used as a diagnostic test. It's a manufacturing technique. The false positives may be 
of the results. There are also false negatives, maybe 20 or 30 percent. What they do is they pick up a fragment of the viral genome that's present in teeny tiny quantities. It doesn't necessarily have to be from a live viable virus. It could be from a cold that you had right. that's still persisting there that, that's not infectious anymore. It's just a piece of something. It's not a vi- the virus itself. So it's really hard to know exactly what these mean. Yes, so on, on top of everything else, such as the way they're classifying and, uh, and the tests themselves, we have a lot more questions than we have answers. And I know that you're going to stay on it along with the AAPS, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, aapsonline.org. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you're doing. Well, thank you. And we'll talk again. All right, right. so that's Dr. Jane Orient, AAPSonline.org. I've known about this organization for years and uh, talked to to Dr. Orient before, and uh, especially in this situation, I think that uh, uh, trying to look at it in terms of medically as opposed to look at it politically, because, and again, not uh, not casting aspersions at any side of the aisle, uh, both sides clearly have jumped on it, and I think that if you look back to the start of this, whatever happened, after after this became known, the, the politicians got in on it all the way, and sure, there's, there's profit motives and things of, of that nature as well, so I know those are, are factors, but trying to get to the bottom of it and something that might, uh, might work for you, well, I think that's the goal. So we were going to have somebody on uh, with a more traditional viewpoint of this in terms of uh, the government line, but she was unavailable this evening in terms of her fears of reopening schools. So that will be uh, rescheduled because uh, uh, absolutely all sides of, uh, of the aisle should be covered.